Let's continue our series in Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter. You will recall that last week we came to the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Luke, a briefer account, of course, than Matthew's. And we also looked at the first beatitude recorded by Luke. Luke chapter 6, 21a and 25a. Luke 6, 21. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, surely, surely, of all the battles that are fought in this world, the greatest battle is fought in the pulpit when the Word of God is being proclaimed. The battle for the hearts and minds of men. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that because the Lord Jesus who died for us and rose again is the victor, and because you have, tell, have told us that he will see his seed and be satisfied, that you will work even today to bring the lost to yourself and to grow your people in grace. And that for which I peculiarly pray this morning is that you will give to this congregation a deep longing for fellowship with you and to every individual a hunger for all that is consistent with your nature. And these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and let's stand together for the reading of Holy Scripture. Luke chapter 6, 21a. This is the Word of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And now the woe, 25, verse 25a. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on the corresponding beatitude as it is found in Matthew's gospel, said this. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. Now that's a rather remarkable observation, don't you think? That is, if one is a true believer, there will be, to varying degrees, spiritual hunger. That's not the ground of our assurance. The ground of our assurance is alone the work of Christ, his merit, his work, his accomplishment on the cross and in his resurrection. Nonetheless, it is true. When a person comes to Christ, all things are new. And there is a spiritual longing for those things that we learn in God's Word that simply was not there before. And as the Word of God is proclaimed today, what I'm longing for and praying for 
is that someone who is here that does not know Christ will understand because he has no longing for those things that he is lost and undone and that the Holy Spirit might grant saving faith and new longings for communion with God. And I am praying for some of us here who perhaps have grown lax and our spiritual hunger is just not where it should be that we will make great progress having heard this sermon today in our longing for God and communion with God and all that is consistent with his nature. So, spiritual hunger is very obviously the theme of this beatitude. Spiritual hunger for what? We'll make that your first point. Spiritual hunger for what? Now, this is one of those instances in which we need to rely on the parallel in Matthew's gospel. As we work through Luke, we want to take Luke on his own terms. He has his own emphasis, but nonetheless, we compare Scripture with Scripture, and we need what Matthew says in order to understand the meaning of this beatitude. Matthew reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Matthew answers for us the question, for what do those who have spiritual hunger long? For what are we hungry? Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Matthew tells us that that hunger is a hunger for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness is used in a variety of ways in the Bible and in various ways in the New Testament. For example, there is imputed righteousness. Righteousness means conformity to a norm, to the perfect standard of God's law and character. How then is it possible that we sinners can stand before the tribunal of God and not be condemned? No human claim will do. You remember how the Apostle Paul put this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." And so Paul is speaking there of justification by grace through faith, that the perfect, complete, infinitely sufficient righteousness of Christ is his and received by faith. This happens in God's courtroom. It is a one-time act when you receive it. It is imputed righteousness. So when saving faith is granted, we receive that perfect record as a judicial act of God once for all, and this is perfectly consistent with the passage, longing for righteousness. But what about imparted righteousness? We distinguish between imputed and imparted righteousness. Imputation is a legal act, and it is an act. It is one time. Imparted righteousness means that God is at work within me morally to transform me and to conform me more and more to the image of his own son. We must distinguish imputed and imparted righteousness, though they may never be severed. Roman Catholicism confuses these with devastating results, and we never want to confuse them. 
but to have a desire to submit to God's will and to conduct one's mind and heart according to God's standard. A desire to be holy is what is meant by imparted righteousness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, said the psalmist. That is what is meant by imparted righteousness. What about the term righteousness as it is used in the Bible of justice? Do you look at the world and long for justice in the world? We Christians see injustice all around, and does not your heart cry out to God for justice? We long for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13. How can a sinner long for righteousness in this world? That ultimately is longing for the return of Christ and the day of judgment, isn't it? Can we really long for that? And the answer is yes, the saved sinner can and does long for the return of Christ and the day of judgment. And we can do so because there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and because we long for this world to be conformed to the standard of God's own character and attributes. The saved sinner can long for this because his heart is more and more conformed to that of Christ and we want this world to be conformed to the standard of righteousness. So imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness, righteousness as God's justice as seen in the world. Now what I'm saying is this, that the term righteousness from Matthew, answering the question for what do we long, for what are we hungry, that the term righteousness in Matthew applied here to Luke is comprehensive in its scope. That is, we long for any and everything that is consistent with God's nature. God himself is righteous. Forensically, when we first have faith, we long to know that we are right with God. We receive Christ and we are justified. Morally, as we grow as Christians, we long to be more like Christ and conform to God's law, his righteous standard. And we long for and hunger for a world that is completely in conformity with God's nature, as we shall see when Jesus returns. We hunger for everything and anything that is conformable to God's own nature, character, and attributes as his people. Do you long for that? Do you long for those things? Did you know a time when you longed to know that you were right with God and you found that by grace through faith the righteousness of God was there for you as a judicial act so that you may be presented in God's court of law? Did you discover as you began your Christian walk that you longed more for communion with God, that you longed to be conformed to his nature? Do you not know as a Christian as you look at the world around you that things just are not right, that they are broken because of the fall and you long for them to be right? Do you not know those things? Does your tongue hang out for those things? Do you long for those things? So what is spiritual hunger? I think we should review. I want to be clear on it. What is spiritual hunger? Make that your second point. Blessed are you who are hungry now. When the Lord first begins the work in the heart and he sees, the sinner sees that he is averse to the law of God, condemned in God's court of law, the heart longs to know that he is right with God and that is spiritual hunger. Have you known it? When a Christian sees justified, accepted by God, but morally speaking, when he sees that, that he fails and 
and that he continues to sin. He longs more and more to be conformable to the righteous standard of God's law. And we have what Campbell Morgan called the divine discontent with everything unlike God. Do you know that? And when we look around us and see so many influences in the world and we long for the Lord to make it right and to vindicate his justice, that is spiritual hunger. When we see a mistreated spouse or these girls captured by terrorists or unjust laws or the debilitation and disintegration of the family or the persecution of saints around the world, and we long for these things to be righted that are wrong. That also is spiritual hunger, longing for the return of Christ and for the new heavens and the new earth. Well, I think we must go more deeply, asking ourselves what are the characteristics of spiritual hunger as we find them in the Bible. So thirdly, what are the characteristics of spiritual hunger? And the first characteristic of spiritual hunger is that a person who has that hunger is conscious of his need. Now, proud sinners will say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But the hungering sinner says, of his own resources, I am wretched, poor, blind, and naked. We sing, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. No man will hunger and thirst after righteousness who is not conscious of his need. Like the leper, we cry, unclean, unclean, and we come by grace to Jesus for cleansing because we are conscious of our need. Are you conscious of your need? That's spiritual hunger. But also for those who spiritually hunger as we search the word of God to ask what are the characteristics Another characteristic of spiritual hunger is to avoid unrighteousness. The Christian checks those unholy thoughts that enter into our mind with the higher thought. That thought is the murderer of my Lord. That can have no place in my life. A man who longs for Christ, who longs for communion with God, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and will have nothing but the bread of heaven as a lifestyle, will not indulge sin. The gospel and a sin-indulgent lifestyle cannot live together in the same heart. We're learning as Christians to kill the adder in its egg before it hatches. We avoid unrighteousness because it is contrary to who God is who has saved us. And that is spiritual hunger. But also... If we are spiritually hungry, we prefer righteousness to all things. Thomas Watson the Puritan says of the unbeliever, Never does an hungry man come with more eagerness to his food than a wicked man does to his sin. And when Satan sees men have such an appetite commonly, he will provide a dish they love. He will set the forbidden tree before them. They that thirst to commit sin shall thirst as Dives did in hell and not have a drop of water to cool their tongue. That's the unbeliever. But the believer, the spiritually hungry, they have been given a new taste. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are now members of the new kingdom. We have a new palate. A new feast is spread before us, before us in the presence of our enemies. And we long to feast and commune with our God. 
We love God's word that we once saw. We saw nothing in the Bible to love. We long for his presence in our corporate worship and in our private worship. We long to hear his word expounded. We long to sing his praises. We long to live for him in all things, nothing accepted. That is spiritual hunger. But you know, when you're hungry, it hurts. I mean really hungry. And so perhaps another way of describing this spiritual hunger is with the word pain. The word pain. Hunger involves pain. The prodigal said when he was there in the pigsty, I perish with hunger, a ravenous desire, a parched throat, a spiritual longing, pain, a sense of perishing, a sense of our inability, that there is no hope for me. There is nothing but emptiness, like Hagar with her child in the desert for lack of of water, dying. I will die without the Lord. I will die without communion with him. I must have him. I must have his word. I must have his gospel. The believer must have this water of life, must have this righteousness. An example of this in a young person that struck me many, many years ago, and young people, I'm not saying that your spiritual thirst, and especially you children, that your spiritual thirst has to look exactly like this, but nonetheless, it's a good example is in the life of the Reformed theologian G.H. Kirsten. He was a great theologian in the Netherlands, lived about the time of the Second World War. But he came to faith in Christ as as a child. And as a child, his longings changed. He wanted God's word. He wanted the truth. And he began to read the old theologians, the old Reformed authors. And he would read late into the night because he was so hungry and thirsty for these things. And his parents found him one night in his room, and his feet were in ice water. Well, son, why, why are your feet in ice water? And he had this great tome in his lap as he was reading. And he said, oh, I do this at night when I start to fall asleep because I want more hours reading these guys. You see, his longing was to know the Lord, to commune with God. So he placed his feet in ice water because his heart was driven by a longing to learn of the things of God. Or maybe to make that more positive, we've spoken of pain, let's use the word desire. May we? The word desire tells us something of what it means to have spiritual hunger. We are simply not satisfied without righteousness. Psalm 119 verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Do you know something of this? If not, the problem is that your will has not been changed. The natural man cannot perceive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned unless the Holy Spirit enter into your heart and transform your will, you will not long for God and you will see no reason to long for the true and living God. It's the vulture again. Put the vulture here. Put before him the dead body and the delicious meal. He will choose the dead body every time because it is his nature. And yet when his nature is changed, he's no longer a vulture, then he will long for the good meal. And so it is with the people of God. He chooses according to his nature. Every one of us chooses according to his nature. And only when your nature is changed will you want the Lord and his righteousness. Put another way, 
If you do not want this, the problem is not with the feast. The problem is with your appetite and what you long for. A man does not desire what he does not love. If you love Christ, you desire Christ. If you love Christ, you desire Christ. Christ on his terms. Christ in all of his fullness. Those who love Christ love all of Christ, not some of Christ. We love his redemption, but also his lordship. Not some of his righteousness, but all of his righteousness. We will not say we want him as Savior, but do not want him as Lord. When we know him, we long for him and fellowship with him as he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Not some of his holiness, but all of his holiness. And we grow in loving him more. We do not only want heaven, we want Christ. Psalm 42 that we have recited this morning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Desire, desire. The Lord was drawing the psalmist into fellowship through trouble, in frustration, anxiety, distress, turmoil, doubt, pain, injustice. The psalmist wants God. The psalmist's path was a mystery to him. He didn't know what God was doing. No matter, he wanted God. This was his joy. This was what delivered him from spiritual depression. He communed with God. And there are those here this morning, you also, in the midst of injustice and pain and sorrow and hurt, you also must see in the midst of it all what really matters. What really matters is that I know God that I commune with Christ, that I know the fellowship of his sufferings in such a way that brings into my heart and life a longing, a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you see that? Spurgeon said of the 42nd Psalm, when it is as natural for us to long for God as for an animal to thirst, It is well with our souls, however painful our feelings. I'm not minimizing your pain. I am maximizing what God and his grace has promised to do in the lives of all of his true and dear children through the pain and through the suffering which has come into your life through his providence to make you his child to be more like your Savior. And then we actually come to the point where we can say, maybe not immediately, but we actually come to the point where we can get upon our knees and maybe through our tears we can say, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever is your will, I'm not enjoying it, but I enjoy you. I want you. I long for you. I want communion with you. I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. Do you know that experience? People of God? Does someone sense that longing for the true and living God in his heart perhaps this morning for the very first time? You've been longing for that which will not count, which will not last, which does not matter. But now you're beginning to long for God. That's grace. Or to put it another way, 
It is only God's longing for you that can produce in your heart a longing for God. And is this not what Jesus is saying in this beatitude? Do you know these things, people of God? Do you know these things? Do you know them experientially? Do you know them in the depths of your soul? But then fourthly, what promise is attached to spiritual hunger? There is a promise. Look at verse 21 again. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. That's the promise. You shall be satisfied. Now, don't you think it's an unusual thing to put hunger and satisfaction together in this kind of way, that we are to constantly long for God, want communion with Him, hunger more and more and more, and yet it speaks of satisfaction? This is the only time in which you can actually long for something more and more and more and be satisfied, because the opposite is the case for all of those things that are contrary to His righteousness. The Lord has already given to you, believer, judicial righteousness once for all. Justification is an act. Now he wants to deepen your longing. Do you know your need for holiness? Put your roots down in God's righteousness and draw with all your might and you still will not drain him dry. There is no draw at all because he is inexhaustible in his merciful nature to you. D.A. Carson says the more a person pursues conformity to God's will, the more attractive the goal becomes and the greater the advancement made. Do you long to conquer sin in your heart? Is that part of the hungering and thirsting of your life? Well, when I really believe that my guilt is forgiven and that God's love fills my heart, I will pursue him more and more. Do we gape for sustenance? If we did, we would have it. If there's dryness, the fault is ours. According to your faith, be it unto you. But has he not promised to fill the hungry? Listen to these verses. Psalm 81.10. Open thy, thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour water upon the thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. John 4.14. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so you will be satisfied. You will be filled. It's a future passive of the verb kartazo that means to eat to the full. You eat and eat and eat and eat. You're hungry, but you're satisfied. You're hungry, but you're satisfied because it's the Lord. To long for righteousness shows that our hearts are already in heaven. And if not, there's a corresponding woe. That means a curse. And we find it in verse 25. Look at it. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The corresponding woe, you can be filled now with that which does not and never satisfies. You can be filled with those things that never fill you up. 
You can gorge yourself with the world and only become more hungry and less satisfied. Is that someone here today? It's everyone outside of Christ in one way or another. Listen to the words of William Hendrickson. On the threshold of eternity, those who have placed their trust in earthly goods suddenly discover how desperately poor they are. Similarly, those who have set their hearts on earthly pleasures are going to discover in the end that they are stuffed so full that all desire is lost. Yet having never shown any appreciation for the higher values of life, these gluttons, unless they are converted, face the never-ending future with a maddening ache that can never be assuaged, a burning thirst that can never be quenched, a ravening hunger that can never be alleviated. Those are earnest words. Those are deeply serious words. Wouldn't you agree? Actually, from one angle, I can think of no better description of hell than the words of Hendrickson here. Unless they are converted, they will face the never-ending future with a maddening ache that can never be assuaged, a burning thirst that can never be quenched, a ravening hunger that can never be alleviated. So the question is, what do you savor? For what does your spiritual mouth water? For what does your tongue hang out? For what do you long? Is it yourself You can't fill yourself. You're created in God's image. Fallen, rebellious, rebelling against all that it means that you are God's image bearer. You think you can fill yourself? Do you long for the world? Young people, 10,000 worlds would never satisfy your life. 10,000 worlds would never satisfy your heart. Do you long for my way or that pet sin of your heart? Or is it the greed of your soul? For what do you long? What do you savor? Or is it Jesus? Is it all that conforms to the righteous character of God? It's free for the asking. Come, everyone who thirsts. Is that you? Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And will there come a day when the Lord will say to someone here, If you had but hungered and thirsted after righteousness, you would have had it. You spurned the Son of God, and since your soul did not thirst for God, for Christ's righteousness imputed, and for conformity to the image of Christ, and for the new heavens and the new earth, you shall thirst forever with unquenchable thirst. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, The world is fading, not filling. Young people, The world is fading, not filling. Just hear it. 
The world is fading, not filling. So, oh, people of God, let us savor Christ. For blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Or in the words of Luke, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You shall be satisfied. Yes, and that forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.